Well, I often talk about on the edge and the various meanings it can have, whether it be interviewees warning us of the perils of the edges of society and ideology, such as in cults and racist groups and wokists and so on. But sometimes it has less of a metaphorical or abstract feel and is about voyaging to the edge, moving the edge a little further out as we push the physical boundaries and explore new terrains and territories like Columbus and all the other explorers whose names I don't know. Today there's Musk, Branson, Bezos and state-owned space explorers such as NASA. But if Musk is to have his way and we are to set up a colony on Mars, it would open up a can of legal worms. By which rules are the humans living there bound? What happens if you murder someone in space or transgress other laws uh, of some countries by doing things that are legal in other countries? Who owns slices of the planet or planets or stars or the moon out there? Who is allowed to mine which parts? And who is responsible for safety? Who applies regulations to space shuttles and how might they differ to the laws that bind airplanes and so on? And that's why we need space lawyers, which is a fun and fancy term, really. Space lawyers, because lawyer on its own, and I ask my lawyer friends, including my other half, to forgive me for this, is a bit boring, just lawyer. But if you add things to lawyer, that's the funny thing about the word lawyer. If you add things like human rights lawyer, that sounds quite interesting. International lawyer, ooh, that's, you could be married to George Clooney if that's your name. Starts to sound really cool. And then if you add space lawyer, wow. That's as cool as it gets, I think, in the legal realm. It all gets a bit Star Wars, really, because Star Wars, if you boil it down to its essence, aside from the Oedipal Shakespearean incestuous soap opera, you know, everyone getting off with their parents and siblings and being married to one another and having each other as kids. It's just space lawyers, really, isn't it? Apart from the Oedipal stuff, it's space lawyers. Particularly episode one, as I recall, um, they really got bogged down in the whole... A little bit too much, to be honest. They got really bogged down in the whole legal aspect. It was just law. Um, and I know that was slammed as a film. It wasn't the most exciting film. But it's still pretty interesting to think about law in space. So Franz von der Dunk, Professor Franz von der Dunk to me, is a professor of space law at Nebraska College of Law, and he's going to be telling us all about things you never thought about regarding law in space. I also ask him to use his profound knowledge to speculate on time periods around, you know, when we will get colonies out into space and when we'll be living out there and messing about in the darkness. Would you fly into space if it were affordable and safe? Let me know on andrewgold underscore OK on the socials or leave a comment on the podcast's YouTube page. Like most of my Saturday episodes, this comes from the Sean Atwood show that I co-host Wednesday nights on his YouTube channel. And the full four-hour version is available on the Sean Atwood True Crime podcast, so check that out. This is a snippet uh, from there. Uh, this episode I did live at 10pm. There are thousands watching and joining the chat while I do it. So again, the Sean ones, just to remind you, I'm doing them live while people on the side. So it's not edited quite as smoothly as my Monday and Thursday episodes. It's live. It's got a bit of a frisson and electricity to it while I'm doing it. I was absolutely shattered, however, at that time. So uh, at the end, Sean does join me for a little chat. Uh, afterwards. And I thought about taking that out because we move on from the space law stuff. It's just a few minutes. 
But we have some funny, silly chat about the Sex Pistols and Purple Aki, the guy who squeezes people's muscles, and Robbie Williams. Um, and, you know, go back to my Count Dankula episode, by the way, to know more about Purple Aki, who squeezes people's muscles. That was a week or two ago. It's basically me trying to go to sleep while Sean keeps talking and keeping me there, talking to the community. People are asking questions on the side. And I guess it just it gives you a bit of an insight into my state of mind at that time. I figured you'll turn it off if you're bored and if you're out walking somewhere, if you're out doing things, then maybe it's nice, another few minutes of content to keep you company. Uh, there are some great episodes coming up on On the Edge with Andrew Gold, uh, including Thinker David McCraney on how to change people's minds and cult leavers and anti-wokist Peter Bogosian. But now you're on the edge of space law with Professor Franz von der Dunk. Franz, how are you doing? I'm good. It's late at night here, as you can see, but uh, that's why you get this grainy picture, but I hope it's still okay with you. It looks all right to me. And you say German, but that's clearly Dutch. No, it's a German name because my father happened to be a German uh, until he came uh, a couple of years before the war to the Netherlands, uh, seeking refugee from the Nazis because my grandmother was a Jew. But the name is German, but I am Dutch. And if you look at my first name, that is a Dutch way of of writing that because the German version would would be Franz with a Z, like Franz Beckenbauer. That is right. Kannst du Deutsch? Yeah, ja, ich kann Deutsch, sicher. Okay, wir können dieser Interview auf Deutsch machen, wenn du willst, aber niemand kann uns nee. verstehen. Nee, better in English, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to show off. I do it all the time. I love showing off. Um, I've seen your TED Talk. You're fantastic. You're a great speaker and everything. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Okay, well, I usually wear two hats. Uh, One is the academic one, which means I'm a professor of space law at the University of Nebraska in the United States. And of course, as a professor, you teach students about what space law is and and what they can do with it later. And you do academic research, write articles and books and stuff like that. And my other hat is is being my own uh, boss as a consultant um, on the same type of issues, space law and policy. So I consult with uh, governments, intergovernmental organization, the private sector in space, uh, the Association of Space Explorers, which is basically the Club of Astronauts. So anybody who is willing to pay me for advice on legal and policy issues on on space, I'm I'm happy to entertain. What kind of student is taking courses in space law? Is it part of the law general law course? No, it's a, it's it's a niche of, in particular, international law. Although there's more and more national law becoming involved as well. Part of the uh, the consequence of so much increasing private sector activity in outer space, which means that governments then have to step in to regulate and control and monitor that. At the same time, probably as, as stimulating it. Um, so it is It is a niche uh, area, just to give you an indication, my, my annual group of students in Nebraska is, is, you know, anywhere between 10 and 20, roughly. Um, and we are basically the leading postdoctoral space law program in the United States, which is, of course, the biggest spacefaring country. So that gives you an idea that it's not, a, you know, it's not, a, it's not like uh, hundreds of universities teach space law or anything like that. 
It's very niche, but it's obviously quite necessary, isn't it? And as you point out in your TED Talk, I think many of us weren't or aren't even aware that one needs a space lawyer or laws in space. Why do we need that kind of thing? Well, to give a very plain answer, you need laws wherever humans, uh, you know, become active and, and, and potentially then run up to conflicts. And the law usually has two types of, 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 uh, of approaches to that. One is the one which probably most lay people think about, and that's to establish some sense of fairness and justice in how humans behave and treat each other. But probably also in space, at least as important, it's just a practical effect of course creating foreseeability. Uh, there's, there's nothing more inherent, uh, inherently just in driving on the left side of the road as compared to the right side of the road. But you have to make a choice either way, because obviously everything ends in, in catastrophe. So, so there's a lot of uh, the role is 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 also the role of law is also to make to make sure that people roughly know what to expect from other people operating in the same area. And that's no different for from space for every other area where humans are active. I heard that a lot of it is about safety and the difference between if you're in a plane or if you're in a space shuttle or some a spaceship or something. And then what about things like, I suppose, property and ownership, like who owns the moon, who owns Mars? I think we've split up Ant Antarctica and places like that into different country ownership. Have yeah. we done some of that with space? Oh, yeah. And I, I can tell you, I can regale you with funny stories about that. But of course, yes. uh, the most intriguing one is that almost 40 years ago an american guy who thought he was smart reading between the lines of the space street he could sort of obtain ownership over the moon and then started selling plots and actually he's become a multimillionaire. but strictly speaking that is fraud i mean the only thing you buy is a piece of paper <laughs> I, there, there was a period you know when this started to hit also or europe where people were starting to buy uh, you know these these deeds yeah. for their for their loved ones as a, as a christmas gift and they were phoning me uh, asking you know what should i do is this real should i take this seriously and i was always tempted to say well you can buy the same part for half the price for me but obviously as a law professor i'm not supposed to to do things like that because strictly speaking it is obviously nonsense but if people are willing to pay money for nonsense people can other people can still become millionaires right yeah i used to do that i did that i think for um my first girlfriend or something when i was 18 it was probably i didn't oh, have really? any money so yeah it, it can't have been more than like 10 pounds or something you know i didn't have any money but it was like a certificate saying that i own or she owns a particular star somewhere i think i knew right. that it was bullshit really but i just thought it's a romantic gesture i suppose uh, absolutely well, if you take it that way that's fine but as mm. long as you don't really uh, you know, consider this to uh, to refer to ownership. And that's where the problem now starts to become a little bit more serious because um, if you sort of happen to have, even as a joke, have, have bought a part of the moon and, and, and then now you start to find out that somebody's mining that part of the moon for, for platinum or gold or, or water, which is the gold of outer space, if you want, uh, you know, you have to think twice before you might not you know you might be tempted to say hey you're you're digging that in my backyard that's basically my stuff and and there has already been an example where where nasa uh, there was an Amer another american guy who claimed an asteroid eros 433 and started sending nasa uh, bills parking bills for par planting their rover 
and and using that that particular asteroid. Now and and NASA and its legal uh, you know personnel, its legal advisors had to go through a number of court cases in order to make darn sure that no judge would be stupid enough to give the guy his due. So it it, it you know it, of course in the end he didn't get parking fees but just the effort and the money of trying to make sure that there would nobody be mistaken on the bench to to give the guy his uh, you know what he thought it was to do is already something seriously and now that we are in you know maybe on the brink of what we call space mining where both on the moon or on asteroids there are pretty serious plans sometimes being hatched to mine them for resources, for, for, for mineral resources and for water, this may become a sort of, you know, fly in the ointment. Because if you, as a company, are going to invest billions in going somewhere because you think you can mine the stuff and make money with that, and then somebody turns up and says, hey, I happen to have this deed, you're digging in my backyard, you don't want that legal uncertainty, right? Why is water space gold? And and would you drink water that was found in space? <laughs> I, I guess so. I mean, I'm pretty confident that they will make it drinkable. Well, first of all, because if the plants, uh, which are currently being hatched by half a dozen of countries, plus a few famous individuals, uh, think in particular, of course, of Elon Musk, of, of uh, building human habitats in outer space, you need water for everything. You need water for the people to drink. You need water to grow stuff, etc., uh, etc. Et but in addition, you can um, split water in oxygen and hydrogen. And oxygen you need to live, and hydrogen you can use as rocket fuel. And rather than take it all from Earth to outer space, if you can sort of use what is in outer space already to then send your ships onwards to Mars or wherever you want to go, there is. I, I can even as a, as a non-economic you know, expert as a lawyer, I can see that there is value in that tremendous value, probably. Elon Musk is uh, quite a famous libertarian, I guess. I don't know if he calls himself that, but I know he doesn't like any sort of rules and laws and things. So is that something that causes a little bit of commotion among space lawyers? Do you think about, you know, if he gets there first, uh, he's not going to want to uh, adhere to any rules? Yeah, well, luckily, sure, to, to start answering your question, yes, it, it does worry us. And, and in particular, if people are so powerful uh, that, that and, and so, you know, in, 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 in the possession of basically a, a close, something close to a monopoly, that is dangerous. But luckily, in space law, we have a very fundamental rule which makes states responsible and liable for what their private entities does. So if somebody, if Elon Musk does something on Mars, which is inappropriate, which is against the law, or which harms others, the bill will land in Washington, D.C. And the United States has signed up to paying for all the damage that he might cause, which, of course, then makes the United States think twice before they allow Musk to do things that may run certain risks. So he needs a license or a couple of licenses. And that's why he doesn't like lawyers, of course. Uh, but uh, th that's the plain truth. And and uh, without that, uh, he will be facing, you know, the, the government of the United States who tell him you're in violation of, of U.S. laws if you don't follow our licensing process. So 
at the moment, I mean, there's no guarantees for sure, but at the moment, I'm still pretty confident that, uh, you know, the US government will make sure that whatever he's going to do, it doesn't, you know, immediately upside the, 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 the whole balance there. And do you see that all happening in the next few years? Or is it going to take decades before we can really commercialize outer space? I guess Branson's another big name, Richard Branson in, involved in, in that stuff. And Jeff Bezos and mm. uh, Robert Bigelow. And you have, you have a bunch of these angel billionaires who, who all want to carve out their place in history by doing something fantastic for humankind. Um, yes, I mean, I should be careful because, I, I, you know, just like you, I don't have a crystal ball and, and lawyers like to stick to the, the letter of the law rather than to talk about possibilities and, and, and future options. Um, so I listen to the people around me who are more expert in judging whether from a scientific and operational and commercial perspective this is feasible. Um, so it can be five years, it can also be 50 years, but I think we're talking about that time frame. And what makes me, if you want, quite optimistic about the fact that we may see that happening, you know, even within the earlier part of that five to 50 year period, that's of course taking it still pretty safely, I know, is that um, there are so many people involved and, 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 and it's not about one technology. I mean, if, 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 if you look back at the big early days of aviation, there were all sorts of funny inventions going on. You, you can laugh your heart out on YouTube, looking at all these fancy clips uh, from silent movies of the last days of the 19th century, where people are using wings to flatter around and stuff like that. Nobody at the time knew what the winning proposition was, but amongst the 10 or 20 or 30 different technologies that was tested, it turned out that the Wright brothers had it right, obviously, and that's why, why we still have now aviation as a major part of our international society. And since we have, in the case of human spaceflight, you spoke about Richard Branson, he uses a totally different type of technology from Jeff Bezos, who again has a different type of technology from what Elon Musk uses. So I'm pretty confident that one of those, or maybe someone we are not aware of yet, will hit the gold spot. Uh, meaning that he he or she is really going to be able to translate this into a feasible commercial day-to-day -day operation. And, and, and that's where, and, and now we're only talking about human spaceflight, but you see the same thing happening, or you already saw it happening actually in satellite communications, uh, which for decades is a multi-billion dollar business, globally speaking. You will probably soon see it in things like on-orbit servicing, in, 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 in uh, active debris removal, basically garbage cleaning, uh, remote sensing operations, uh, satellite navigation, all sorts of stuff. So I'm pretty confident that that will happen, yes. And so you guys, I suppose, are writing up laws that have you know we need for outer space but do all the countries agree what is there anything to stop a rogue country going like no we're going to go up first and take mars and and we'll fight anybody who wants to have it themselves yeah well i i i don't want to overstate our roles as academics or even consultants we're also we're always one or two arms length away from where the real law is made which is in the international uh, field the the states and uh, the the countries and then in particular of course the countries who are big in space now luckily we have a legal framework which has been signed up to by all the major spacefaring countries united wow. states russia china 
um, uh, the big Western European countries, but also countries like India, Indonesia, Nigeria, Brazil, everyone who is something in space has signed up in particular to the most important treaty, which we call by its short name, the Outer Space Treaty, going back to 1967. So we at least have that layer of general agreement. And there might be a rogue state who thinks probably, well, I don't sign up to the treaty because I don't like it, so I can do whatever I want. But that country will probably face the political wrath of all these space behemoths, will be cut short on all the technological inventions and all the cooperation, will probably face political sanctions. I mean, look at what's happening at North Korea. They don't really get very far because uh, so far they've been put in a corner. So I'm not that worried in that sense that a rogue state will really wants to, uh, you know, really get away with it. Although, you know, it's fair to say that given the way the geopolitical situation has developed over the last, let's say, year or so, maybe a few years, things are getting worse. And, uh, you know, in, in the old days of the Cold War, the good old days of the Cold War, when we just had two superpowers, and as long as they were not fighting with each other, everything was hunky-dory, we now have a multipolar world. We have um, some smaller powers who are getting their hands on some of that technology. So things are becoming a little bit more worrisome. That is absolutely true. Yeah, you can but see... I would lose... Sorry, go Sorry. On. What, what I, I wouldn't lose a, 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 a night of sleep over it right now. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, you can see some sort of uh, autocrats, uh, the Putin of the future, just deciding one day if he's ill or something, he's going to leave a legacy by taking the moon or something. Do you envision the militarization of outer space? Well, I think, again, we should be careful with the terminology here. Militarization of space has taken place from the very beginning. I mean, uh, Sputnik, 1957, had mainly a security implication, namely of showing to the United States that their Cold War adversary was now able to send a metal ball over U.S. territory, uh, which in the context of potential, uh, you know, potential hot war would have, of course, been a major, major feat. All the first astronauts and cosmonauts were military personnel. So when people now start talking, oh, space is being militarized, it has been militarized from the very start. 
and and about 60% maybe of all the space technology has been developed for in, in the military field still almost all space applications and technologies have at least potential dual use issue so i don't i don't I, that's already a foregone conclusion and those who think that they can keep space free from military implications live in a fairy tale country what is important is that we are not yet weaponizing outer space and there we luckily have on the one hand going back to the outer space treaty of 1967 a clear cut prohibition to station weapons of mass destruction in outer space basically nuclear weapons whereas other weapons are prohibited on celestial bodies there we can really say at uh, the moon and asteroids they are demilitarized so no military activity whatsoever is possible. And uh, there's only a, a very small carve out. The use of military personnel for scientific and peaceful purposes, such as, let's say, the moon landings of 1969-72, that is perfectly allowable. But no no weapons, no exercises, etc., etc. And that weapons have not been used elsewhere in outer space so far is also, I think, a matter of military expediency because nobody knows what happens if you fire a gun in outer space and you certainly won't do a lot of damage down on earth so far oh my god what a thought there's so much to think about including this question from the viewer easy e is there going to be work on collecting all the debris and dead satellites and have you heard of the dark cube satellites reported to be circling the earth yeah well, the, the the second the second part I, I don't want to spend too much words on because it's uh, there's still so much unclear about it that it, I, I would start speculating about it. When it comes to the first part, uh, the problem with space debris is that gradually everyone is getting aware that this is a problem, and and in a sense, luckily, it's a problem for everyone. Uh, it's not just a problem for the U.S. or just for China. It's a problem for everyone. And, and very ironically, when the Russians uh, re very recently did a little bit of target practicing in outer space on their own satellites, uh, just to show their muscles in the, in the sort of the political struggle with the uh, geopolitical struggle with the with, um, U.S. and China to some extent, um, the part of what they blew up started to threaten the space station which meant uh, there are certain protocols if stuff gets too close to the international space station then everyone on board has to go uh, seek refuge in 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 the vehicle which can then immediately get off if something really bad happens if something really hits so they have to go in their lifeboat if you want to use that sort of simile and that included three russian cosmonauts because they're also working on the space station so space debris doesn't discriminate we're all in this together so there is this sense to go back to the original question that this is a major problem part of the problem is that there may already have you know i have seen already many proposals and actual test operations of actually cleaning out debris the problem is there is no financial reward for that yet just sending a mission out there to vacuum clean or to harpoon a dead satellite and take it down and, and things like that. They cost in themselves millions. So who's going to pay those millions if if you only get a nice thank you maybe from some of the operating satellite owners? So as a cynic, I would be saying let's wait until the first $100 million satellite you know, is, is kicked out of operation because of a tiny piece of debris before we will see that 
probably the operators will be willing to pay a part of their costs into a fund taking clear of the garbage cleaning. Hmm. So we're thinking it's, about it. It's developing, but we're not there yet. It's a funny thought, isn't it? Because I suppose uh, from the beginning, we must have thought that space is so big, you can just, it's like, it's like you know, it's pissing in the ocean you know right. uh but of right. course it's all in the orbit just outside the atmosphere so it's quite troublesome oh it is and and i mean you see sometimes pictures which uh, which make it look even more threatening the, the problem is that in particular small pieces are very difficult to track and because of the speed with which they're traveling they can still pierce an astronaut suit or, or, or a heat shield on a shuttle or things like that. Uh, so we're not only talking about the big stuff. I mean, we've, we've got that covered, basically. We know where it is. We can monitor it. We can make sure that if it comes too close to the space station or to an operating satellite, it can sort of turn around or move a little bit out of harm's way, things like that. But it's the small stuff that we cannot track because it's too small. And there's too much of it, which can still, you know, cause huge damage. Hmm. Do you do you like to speculate about our near future and and you know far off future uh, with regards to you know activities in space? Well, if you want me to, I can <laughs> give it a shot. Well, as I said, lawyers are not very good at speculating. That's huh. partly why the law always runs a little bit behind the curve, curve of the actual developments. But I do think that we are on the brink of a very important breakthrough that brings me back to what we discussed before. There's now so much, uh, not just two states, but there's a number of states. Uh, it's not just the US and Russia anymore. It's also China, India, into the game, smaller countries, the European Space Agency, combining the sources of, of uh, resources of many European countries. There are major developing countries who want to be out there. There are all these private investors which are doing stuff. So I think we are on the brink of a, a maybe a breakthrough where things get cheaper and cheaper and where more and more stuff gets into space and going back to what we just discussed about the space debris at the same time we have to start doing something about it and and doing something about it seriously so in that sense we are really at a crossroads um if we don't start doing stuff you know in in the sense of space very soon then all these beautiful promises of what we can do in space uh, that we can probably you know go to space for our all our energy needs and 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 finally stop you know uh robbing the earth of the atmosphere because we use all these fossil fuels out uh, down here and i i recall that one of the lunar astronauts uh, jack smith he came back convinced that the moon could live could could provide enough helium-3 uh through uh, f uh nuclear fusion to you know to light up all of the united states all day and all of the night so i mean i'm not sure again i have to trust his geological insights on that but this is the type of breakthrough this is the type of hope that space brings but at the same time we should not kill that hope by clogging everything up with with the space debris which makes it impossible to even get there i mean i'm i'm painting a very black and white picture but i think you get the sense yeah, absolutely. And if people are able to live on Mars through whatever means, you know, whether that's uh, reconditioning the atmosphere there, which seems completely impossible, or, or building places with oxygen or who knows what, uh, do, do, you, do you imagine that 
maybe countries would want to sort of carve up the planet to an extent as they have done on Earth and say, well, this is the Netherlands place, this is the, the British place and so on? Well, the, the risk is certainly there. I mean, uh, one of the beauties of this Outer Space Treaty, which I mentioned before, is that this article uh, number two states basically that it's like the high seas and no country can own any part of outer space and this was done on purpose in order to prevent any land grabs in outer space but of course it's easy to say so in 1967 when you know it was just about a handful of astronauts for a short period and even the moon landings had not been had not taken place yet at the time now we are in a totally different ball game so i'm pretty sure that once you know, countries start engaging in serious activities there, the question will come up again and again and again. So far, this Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty provides a barrier against that, but no law is literally written in stone. And if all the countries together, at least the major ones, agree that, oh, let's get rid of this Article 2 and let's carve up the moon, then it might happen. As a lawyer, I, as a space lawyer, as a human being, I, if you allow me, I would try to fight against that because I don't think it's a good solution. Um, I, I think it's better to find solutions for making sure that even in the absence of really owning the land as a country, uh, colonizing it in the legal sense, you can make practical, pragmatic arrangements for making sure that humanity will benefit to the maximum extent possible from all that space can bring. But what happens if, say, Elon Musk is there and he kills Johnny Depp on Mars? And like, so whose rules? Or, for example, I know that in some countries, I, I gather that it is illegal to be gay. And, you know, so, so whose rules do we go by on Mars? Well, th th uh, that leads me... Uh, maybe I should go back here to a very fundamental element of law which usually applies on two various bases one is nationality uh, uh, much much laws apply to nationals regardless of wherever they are and elon musk uh, doesn't lose his u.s nationality merely because he happens to be walking on around on mars when he when he's killing johnny depp so uh, the fact that u.s law makes it a crime for any U.S. citizen to kill anyone else, anywhere else or anywhere in the world, anywhere in the universe, I should say, actually, uh, still applies to the moon as well. So once he's be brought back to Earth, he will simply he will certainly be brought to justice. Mm. There are some laws which talk about territorial, uh, uh, for example, uh, laws on, on, on uh, how to deal and all sorts of stuff. Talk about uh, gay laws. Uh, they are usually applied on a territorial basis because even though there are countries where it's prohibited to be gay, if a person with the nationality of that country happens to live in another country where being gay is not a crime, uh, as long as he makes that person, he or she, makes sure that he doesn't get back to his country of nationality, the police of that latter country cannot simply fly over and take him into custody because he happens to be in another country. That's where the, the case of extradition comes in, uh, the concept of extradition. So um, in outer space, that doesn't work because there is no territory. Um, but it still means that if you are gay on the moon, um, 
a home state unless it happens to be the United States or maybe China or, or, or Russia at this point in time will have a very hard time in actually enforcing that because it means that you have to get there apprehend the person and then punish him or whatever you do yeah good luck extraditing Elon Musk from Mars or the moon I think he's is he American he's American Canadian and South African so all three countries would yeah. be trying to extradite him that, for killing Johnny Depp. Yeah, that complicates issues for sure. Oh man! Well, tell us where uh, where can people follow you and and all that stuff. Um, well, the the most the, the, the two easy routes are uh, to go to my university's website, the University of Nebraska Lincoln, and then go to the. College of Law. We have a faculty directory, and if you go to my own page there, I believe I gave some of your uh, colleagues the, the exact uh, URL. You can go to my my particular page on the academic website, and you'll get access to you. You, you mentioned the TEDx talk, and there are all sorts of other stuff there: media, TV shows, uh, radio shows, podcasts, and also for those who who want to sit down and read the more academically oriented articles. And the other route is going through the site of my own company, which is called Black Holes BV, um, which also, you know, gives you access to all these, um, all these audio links and video links and TV programs and stuff like that. And it also can tell you if you're interested in that, you know, the kind of projects that I actually have done as a consultant so far. Oh, it's fascinating. And this was a really, really interesting one, Franz. You're a fantastic speaker. I've just had two really Thanks. good ones. So th thank you. I'm in a good mood now. Thank you so much for that. And have a lovely after lovely evening. Um, you might have to, thank you you. Might have to close, close your own box or something because I don't have the... Oh, yeah, he's done it. And uh, yeah, no, that was brilliant. What a great night. Oh, I can hear Sean now. Are you there? Yes, I am here. What a great night it has been. Oh, you creepy man. We're such a wonderful, handsome, hurry-backed host, co-host. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you this, right? Those two that we just had were two of my favourite ever guests, and we've just had them on the Patreon tonight. They were absolutely brilliant. Their speaking abilities were off the scale. Yeah. 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 The first guy had on was an absolute live wire, wasn't he? He was mm. just on yeah. fire. Proper Alabama kind of thing going yeah. on. Yeah. He was really cool, and then that whole space thing. Yeah, Franz is really charismatic as well. Like he's because you get academics, don't you? And sometimes they don't have the charisma as well. And he he did. So that was, but both of those guys were really. I feel energized sometimes. By the end, I do get quite tired after hours. You know, my back hurts and all that. How long before you guys are silverbacks? What does that mean? A silverback? Ray J's asking. Uh, our hurry back to turning silver. Just going grey. Well, I think with Sean, that probably happened about half hour ago. <laughs> um, sorry, I mean 30 years ago. Um, Another reason to get the laser on it. Yeah, exactly. Whereas mine, I'm doing all right. It's all black hairs, but I haven't been um, I haven't been dying it or anything. Right, so you're but, so, so energized, yeah. you're just going to do a one-hour monologue now? Do you want me to come back and, and shut it Yeah, I'll just be talking for hours, mate. Don't you worry. Is that, until the last person in this chat goes to bed, just make sure they all let me know. If it, if no one's said anything for half an hour, I will go just... No, it is, it is time to go to sleep. My back's Guess who me. has gone to bed already? Ash has gone to bed. Ages he ago, has. He? he sent me a message. Ash, the guest bucket has gone to bed. It is confirmed. Yeah, well, where he lives, it's like four in the morning. I, w I won't give his address away, but it's somewhere where it's late. Don't dox him. I should do I should dox Axe. That, that was Ash, sorry. That was shown. Yeah. Right, I'm going to go to sleep, aren't I? 
Sean, it's been beautiful. Uh, viewers, everyone, it's been beautiful as well. Thank you for being beautiful. It's such an awesome community, isn't it? The yeah. way everyone interacts on the, in the chat, the way Ash just lines up amazing guests well, on all these eclectic subjects. Yeah. Skinwalker Ranch, man. I'm going to do a deep dive yeah. into that now. Yeah, no, that was brilliant as well. The whole patron section has been brilliant. The YouTube one has been better because people didn't turn up, did they? But we saved it in the end, didn't we? With um, that fellow, oh, what was his name? Who turned up halfway through? Uh, he's one Charlie of Charlie Robinson. Yeah, yeah, he's really good. Yeah, we'll get all that out as clips. It'll it'll do fine. Yeah, no, we got lucky. We got got it saved. It's it's a it's a tough gig. This you know putting this together every week. So Ash has done a great job, and we've done a great job, Sean, haven't we? Oh, we try. We try. <laughs> right. Good night, mate. Good night, everyone. God go save the Queen. God <laughs> save the Queen. No, stop singing. Not your band, mate. God save the Queen. <laughs> she ain't no human being. Married to a moron. I'm so happy this is in my ear. Love having this in my ear before I go to sleep. Are you not a fan of the Sex Pistols? <laughs> I, I, I know the songs, a couple of them, but I, there's a series, isn't there? But I haven't given it a watch. First song I ever bought was on a single, and it was Holidays in the Sun by the Sex Pistols. Wow. And when was that? Yeah. The 70s? From the, They had an album out called Nevermind the Bollocks. Yeah, that's where Nevermind the Buzzcocks comes from. Yeah. I think, what was my first ever album? I think it was... Robbie Williams' uh, Sing When You're Winning album. It has um, Rock DJ on it. Yeah, I could see you dancing to that. I don't want to rock stripping off. DJ because you're <laughs> keeping me up all night. Ooh, not bad. Yeah, well, the weights I get on that piano. <laughs> <laughs> One day I'll do it for you all. You should have seen your eyes when um, Count Dankula was Telling the purple Aki story. Aki is, is verified. He's not a boogeyman. I always thought he was because I saw that BBC documentary about him and they sort of suggest he might not be real in that. As far as I remember, I saw it years ago. And uh, no, guy. they were trying to create some kind of story arc though, weren't they? Like they were on a journey to find this mythical personality. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but yeah. From every, all Widnesians know that Aki is very real because he squeezed many muscles in my hometown. So He's banned from do. Witness, Warrington, all the towns around my town. <laughs> you sound like um, David Brent in the office, like listing all these towns, you know. Witness, Slough. Warrington, Wigan. Wigan, Slough, all the big ones. He's been banned from all the big ones, all the muscles. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> eh? I was told that he actually went to a bodybuilding thing to touch some muscles up, but it, he didn't. He didn't. Re he, he got in there, but he didn't realise it was a police one. <laughs> that's not true oh who knows who knows luckily i don't have any muscles so he's not come near me yeah but you got the height mm. i don't if, if there's if there's some sort of boogeyman who likes touching tall people then fair enough what i didn't say on youtube was when mates when they were kids um aki would have them make him squat them but then he'd get a boner yeah well that happens sean doesn't it you know <laughs> that happened to you when I gave you a hug the other day at the uh, <laughs> crime con. Oh uh, my goodness, you perv. Yeah, that's what I said to you. <laughs> uh, right, I'm going to bed. Good night, everyone. Love you, Sean. Love you, everyone. Much love. Can't wait to see you at the next crime con. Yeah, next year.
Thank you for watching, everybody. Huge thank you, especially to all the Patreons. You are helping us keep this madness getting published. Everything from the Anunnaki to the Skinwalker's Ranch. And uh, next week, we will bring you much more. So, night-night, people. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world. Cheers. I'm going to end the broadcast. We will see you next week at the same time, 6 p.m. For more Atwood Unleashed, Wednesday nights every 6 p.m. Commencing on YouTube. Cheers. Thank you, Professor Franz von der Dunk. Uh, Franz from the dark, as, as his name would suggest. Outer space lore. I loved that one. It was really good and a great ending to that four-hour episode of the Sean Atwood Show that I co-host Wednesday nights. Check that out on his YouTube channel or the Sean Atwood True Crime podcast. The professor gave a fascinating insight into the kinds of things we'll have to think about once space travel becomes as regular as air travel is today. It boggles the mind to think about it, but it's very likely that that will be our future. I hope you enjoyed. Do let me know any thoughts on Twitter, Instagram, comment on YouTube. I've got a new TikTok account too. Just type the podcast name in to find it. Some big names and fascinating stories coming up on On The Edge with Andrew Gold. You've been on that edge, floating about among the stars and planets in space lore. If you enjoyed it, please share with friends and have a beautiful weekend. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.